You've heard me reference this before, but probably one of the most stirring passages, I think, um, from Paul is 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just keep your finger in 1 Timothy chapter 1, but I want you to flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and listen to these words by Paul. I reference these quite a bit. They're some of the last words that the Apostle Paul wrote before he was martyred. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse... Six. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Folks, that is our hope, and that is our goal, I believe, as Christians. We should be able to get to the end of our lives and say, I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. You'll notice Paul uses a number of metaphors here. He's actually talking about um, almost like an athletic event, if you will. He likes metaphors. In fact, elsewhere, Paul talks about being a soldier serving Um, He talks about being an athlete competing in a race. He talks about being a boxer beating into the wind. Paul is very comfortable using these metaphors. And today he uses this metaphor here of fighting the good fight and finishing the course or finishing the race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, Therefore I run in such a way not as without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. These are all metaphors of Paul's life and how he competed, if you will, how he looked at his life. He saw it as a race to finish, a fight to win. And so we actually see that today because he sort of repeats that with Timothy. If you turn back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, let me just read verse 18 of chapter 1. Our passage is going to be 18, 19, and 20 from this morning. And again, that's, just, that's our starting position. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them, and look at this, that you fight the good fight. That's how Paul finished. That's what he said at the end of the life, I fought the good fight. And now he's telling Timothy here, Timothy, you need to fight the good fight as well. When Paul says, this command I entrust to you, he's referring primarily back to what he said in verses 3 and 4. If you go back to verses 3 and 4, you remember why he left Timothy at Ephesus. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Paul left Timothy at Ephesus to make sure there wasn't any false teaching, that they were behaving appropriately. We see that when we get into chapter 2 and 3. And so Paul had given to Timothy a pretty substantial mission, and it had to do with shepherding and caring for the church at Ephesus. Now, it's interesting here, if you go back to verse 18 again, he says, I entrust to, or, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. What are these prophecies? If you jump over to chapter 4, verse 14, you get a glimpse. 
He says, do not neglect, this is chapter 4, verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery, by the elders. There was a time where, when Paul was, I'll say, commissioned, if you will, for the ministry that God had called him to, the elders, probably church in Derby or Lystra, laid their hands on Timothy. Prophetic utterance was made, probably describing the way that the Lord would use him and the gifting that the Lord had given him to equip him to do what God was going to call him to do. Jump to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I know we're doing a lot of jumping around, but this is all laying some groundwork for us. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason, Paul is writing to Timothy, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So the Holy Spirit had gifted Timothy in a certain way, partly through the elders laying their hands on him, partly through Paul laying his hands on him, and partly probably just through the giving of the Holy Spirit. We all receive gifts and abilities. But all of those things prepared Timothy for the ministry that he was right now in the center of. And so with that in mind, as Paul is encouraging Timothy through this letter to carry out his mission, the duties that Christ had assigned to him, we find this charge, the end of verse 18, by them, fight the good fight, Timothy. Fight the good fight. One of the things that Paul does in this letter is he provides Timothy with encouragement on how to successfully do just that. We're going to look at four things this morning. I'll say four instructions. I almost hate kind of doing this because our Christian life isn't about just do these four things and everything's cool. You know, it becomes a form of legalism, right? But there are principles that we can draw from. And so I'm going to give you four things that Paul told Timothy in this letter. There's, there's actually more. I'm going to try to bring it into about four of them because I don't want you to go home with a list of ten things. But there are at least four things that Paul says to Timothy that I believe he's doing to equip Timothy. How do you fight the good fight? And I think we've got some principles in there that we can apply to our own lives. How do we fight the good fight? Because, folks, that's what it's all about. Do you want to be like the Apostle Paul when you know you're at life's end? Do you want to be able to look back at your life and say, I have fought the fight. I have run the course. I've, I've finished. And now there lays up for me the reward that the Lord promises because of that. I'm hoping that's what your hope is. So mine is. I read these words of Paul often because they almost make me weep because that's what I want for myself. But in order to do that, we have to fight the good fight. And so we're going to look at four things today that that Paul, I believe, shares in this letter that provide Timothy with what he needs to know and understand in order to fight this good fight. What's going to be required? The very first one we find in our main passage this morning. He says in the end of verse 18 that by them you fight the good fight. In order to fight this good fight, Timothy would need to keep faith, keep the faith, and a good conscience. Look at what he says in verse 19. Keeping faith and a good conscience. That's a participle that defines what it means to fight the good fight. So we basically, another way we could read this is, fight the good fight by keeping the faith, or keeping faith and a good conscience. With some having rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to to their faith. And so the very first thing, the very first principle we see here in order to fight the good fight, we have to keep faith and a good conscience. 
By keeping faith, Paul is referring to remaining faithful to the doctrines and practices of Christ, the Christian faith. It's not simply belief. It's not just simply faith. One of the things that drives me crazy is when I hear people say, I'm a person of faith. Oftentimes, what they mean is, I believe, but it doesn't mean that they believe or accept or live by the principles laid out in the scriptures. It's almost as if they worship faith. I have faith in faith, I one time heard somebody say. Faith in faith. No, we are to have faith in Christ, but oftentimes when you see this word faith in the New Testament, it isn't just referring to, I believe something, I believe Christ, but it means to wrap your arms around the doctrines and the principles of the Christian faith. You can't simply say, I have faith, if you don't have faith in Christ and what Christ stands for. And so oftentimes, again, this idea of faith, when we're told to maintain the faith, to hold on to the faith, it's more than just, oh, I believe in Christ. It's that I believe in Christ and the principles that Christ taught. Remember what Jesus said about the Great Commission? He says to make disciples by baptizing them, and then what? And teaching them, did he say, just to believe in me? No, he says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Those are the doctrines and the principles and the behaviors of Christ. And so, I believe that when he tells Timothy here, Timothy, you need to keep faith. He's talking there not just about your simple faith in Christ, but rather the faith, Christianity, the doctrines, the principles. And the reason I know that to be the case, this whole entire book is filled with Paul telling Timothy that. He starts off by telling them, Timothy, prevent false teaching. That's the way he starts. And so Paul has in mind here, keeping the faith in a clear conscience means that you accept the doctrines that are laid out in the scriptures regarding Christ and Christianity, the doctrines that we hold dear, and that you hold them with a clear conscience, which means you don't waver in them. It's exactly the opposite of what the false teachers were doing. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, or in later times, some will fall away from the faith. The faith. They'll fall away from these doctrines and teachings. It says here, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul warned Timothy about that in 2 Timothy. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, The time's going to come, folks. They're going to want their ears to be tickled. They're going to fall away from sound doctrine. So there's more in mind here than just, I believe in Jesus Christ. It's maintaining a clear conscience in how you hold on to the doctrines and the teachings of Christ. Keeping a good conscience goes hand in hand with that. Keeping faith because what we believe is true. Holding tightly to that. Back in verse 4, I think it's verse 5, Paul talked about the importance of keeping a good conscience. He said that's part of what their teaching was motivated to do, was to produce a good, clear conscience. Somebody who was sincere in their beliefs. According to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, maintaining a good conscience is the thing that helps cause us to have good conduct. You know, it's funny, if you don't believe these things, if you don't hold to them, you won't behave in accordance to them. I've been working ahead here, obviously I'm about six or seven weeks ahead in my study here. And one of the things that Paul is going to do as we get into chapter 2, is he's going to 
address them on some of their bad behavior. And after that discussion, he, he makes these, these interesting statements, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, where he talks about why it's so important for the church, you and me, to have proper conduct. And one of the last things he says is we need to maintain proper conduct because it's one of the ways that the church guards the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. And if you just read that outside of the context, it would mean one thing. But when you see it in the context of Paul talking about our behavior, he's saying one of the reasons we have to maintain good behavior, a good clean conscience, why we have to hold on to the faith, meaning the doctrines and the teachings, is because we are the church and we are the pillar and support of that truth. And so Paul is challenging Timothy here. Timothy maintained the faith. Have a clear conscience with that. Don't be, as he mentions here, like a couple of people he mentions in verse 20. Look at verse 20. There are some, he said, who have suffered shipwreck in their faith. What a great... Paul loves these metaphors and these word pictures. They have suffered shipwreck. Now, Paul knows what it was like to be shipwrecked. Was it twice at least, maybe three times Paul was shipwrecked? He spent days out in the ocean floating around. He knows what that's like. And so he uses that word picture from his personal experience to say that some have suffered shipwreck in their faith. Why? Because they've abandoned the faith. They've walked away from sound doctrine. They've not had clear consciences in that. And he even mentions some of the people here. Verse 20, he says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. That's a pretty tall charge so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. It's interesting, he mentions this Hymenaeus. We don't know a whole lot about these men, but Hymenaeus is mentioned along with another man named Philetus, and what we know about them, this is from 2 Timothy chapter 2, is that they taught that the resurrection had already taken place. I'm sorry, um, that the resurrection of the dead had already taken place. They were upset, upsetting, I'm sorry, some of the faith of some of the individuals. Our resurrection had not happened. They had not missed it yet, but they were teaching Things like that. Paul referred to their teaching as spreading like gangrene or cancer. Another individual Paul mentioned is is Alexander. What we know about Alexander is that he was a coppersmith. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warns Timothy to be on guard against him. And he says, because this man did a tremendous amount of harm to Paul. He opposed Paul's teaching, did harm to Paul. And so Paul mentions these three individuals here. They probably weren't the only ones. But he mentions these false teachers who had abandoned the faith no longer had a clear conscience when it came to that. And as a result, he says they suffered shipwreck. There's no way to maintain a relationship with Jesus Christ when you abandon the things that Jesus Christ stands for. You've all probably heard by now of the deconstructionist movement. These oftentimes musicians or popular Christian leaders, it's primarily found within the music industry and Christian circles, on these people who are deconstructing their faith now. They're walking away from many of the doctrines that we hold dear because they're in the scriptures. And they're still claiming that they're faithful. They just believe in Jesus. But all the other stuff they're walking away from because it's destructive and it's divisive and it just, Jesus is all about love. And so they're deconstructing their faith. What they're basically saying is all those things I was taught from the Bible, I no longer believe or accept. And I'm now shedding those things. They're divisive. They're unimportant. You know, that's no different than when I got saved. At that time, back in the 80s, doctrine was unimportant. Doctrine is what got me saved. Somebody sat me down, told me what the Bible said. I had either accepted or rejected. Now, I didn't know everything. 
But I had to understand some core principles related to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know. And so Paul says, Timothy, one of the ways you fight this good fight is by keeping the faith and a clear conscience. Don't suffer shipwreck like these men did. There's a second thing that Paul shares with Timothy, and it comes in chapter 4. Look at verses 11 through 16, and we're just going to touch on this. Like I mentioned, the first principle comes right out of our primary text, which is fight the good fight. And that is a theme that continues throughout the letter. So as we get to chapter 4, Paul gives Timothy a second principle, if you will. Let's look at verses 11 through 16. Prescribe and teach these things. In other words, what Paul has been sharing with Timothy through this letter. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which in Timothy's case was preaching and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Take pains in these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Timothy, dive into these things. Absorb these things. Be diligent about these things so that other people can see your growth. Pay attention to yourself and to your teaching, persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and for those who hear you. The second principle that Paul shares with Timothy is that in order to fight the good fight, he would need to discipline himself for godliness through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Did you catch that? He would need to discipline himself for godliness through the preaching and teaching of biblical truth. In chapters 2 and 3, I kind of mentioned this before, Paul provides Timothy with some instructions on how the church is supposed to behave. There were some things happening at Ephesus that weren't great. The men were bickering and fighting with one another. The women were coming in with their hair all dolled up and these tall, weird-looking wigs and dangling stuff. And it wasn't so much that Paul was saying you shouldn't dress up, but rather they were copying some cultural things and paying attention to those things. And it was much like when we copy influencers today and want to look like them with lip fillers and everything else. You know, it just gets a little bit crazy. And Paul has to confront them and say, this, this is inappropriate. You shouldn't be pursuing these things. And so he had that issue. There were some issues with teaching and, and leadership within the church. So Paul addresses all those things in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Lays out qualifications for elders and, and for deacons and other things. Then in chapter 4, he describes how the Holy Spirit had indicated that a time's going to come where people are going to abandon sound doctrine for doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. In the rest of chapter 4, Timothy goes on and challenges him to be a good servant of Christ, constantly nourished in the words and the faith and sound doctrine. So that's all a bit of a summary. And then he gets into these verses in chapter 11 and says, prescribe and teach these things. That's your job, Timothy. All these things we just rattle off in chapters 2 and 3 about their behavior, their conduct, elders, deacons, prescribe and teach those things that will make you a good servant, that will allow you to continue to fight the good fight. Verse 13, he tells Timothy, give attention, he says, to the reading of Scripture, to exhortation. That's what we're doing this morning, to teaching. Tells Timothy, don't neglect the gifts you have to teach and to preach. 
He concludes the section in verses 15 and 16 by saying, take pains in these things, be absorbed in these things, pay close attention to yourself, meaning how you apply them personally. Pay attention to your teaching. That means what he shares with others. And so he says, Timothy, pay attention to you yourself, that you're applying these things, that you're learning these things, that you're growing in these things. But then also pay attention to what you're teaching others. You know, Dustin and I, and occasionally Dave will come up and we stand up here in front of you. I get the privilege and the opportunity every week of putting probably, on average, about 15 hours a week into studying, to preparing for what we do on Sunday mornings here. I've told this repeatedly to people. It is God's way of holding me accountable. Because I don't have a choice. I have to stand up here in front of you every Sunday, and if I'm not prepared to tell you what this says, then i got a problem. It's God's way of keeping me accountable. He forces me into the text every week, even if I don't want to be in the text. I don't have a choice. And I praise God for that. Because I might get lazy. I might not want to do it. The average Christian spends less than an hour in the Bible a week. And it's on Sunday mornings when the preacher's preaching. But look at what Paul tells Timothy. Be absorbed in them. Pay attention. Be diligent. And then he says, for yourself first, pay attention to yourself. Timothy shouldn't have been involved with deconstructing. Stay firm and committed to these things. By teaching and preaching sound biblical truths and working hard at applying them first to himself and then sharing them with others, Paul says that his progress, his spiritual growth would become evident to all and he would ensure salvation for himself and for them. So what's our takeaway? This is good advice, not just for Timothy, but for us. Every believer should discipline himself or herself for godliness by seeking out the preaching and teaching of God's word. It's the same thing with the first. I don't know if we covered a takeaway for the first point, but the reality of it is we should be exactly like Timothy when it comes to these things. Timothy needs to maintain the faith, a good, clean conscience when it comes to those things. We do as well. And the same thing is true here. Just as Paul calls on Timothy to invest in the preaching and the teaching of God's word, we need to as well. Nothing makes my heart ache more than when I hear people that say, boy, you know, I love the church we're at because it's got this and this and this and this, but I really don't feel like I'm getting fed. My heart just sinks. It tells us where the priority is. All those other things, I just, I don't need to be fed. But I love the fact that they got A, B, C, and D. Somebody not too long ago was telling me about a church that they went to. He was a guy that came and fixed my, fixed my refrigerator or freezer for me. He mentioned he was going to a particular church. And he's like, man, the music is awesome. They have to give us earplugs because it's really, really loud. And I know it can get a little loud here sometimes. But, um, and so he, but he's like, uh, you know, I sort of love it. It's really moving. All I said, what's the teaching like? And he went, mm. He goes, it's okay. We don't go there for the teaching. My heart just sank. I'm not saying it's the only... I mean, it isn't just about the teaching, folks. I don't want to give that impression. But one of the reasons we put the teaching at the front is because we're trying to let you know this is, we think, important. And we spend 45 to 50 minutes in it because we think it's important. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Because it's one of the things that helps us fight the good fight. And that's exactly what Timothy was told. And so as Christians, the takeaway for us in this is We have to absorb ourselves in these things. Seek out 
proper, sound, godly preaching and teaching. If it's not here, it's somewhere else, but find it and invest yourself in it. But likewise, make sure that you're not seeking something simply because you like the way it sounds and your ears are tickled. I know many people will say, man, I listen to 18 blogs a week, and then they start listing off what they're listening to. I'm like, wow. Just because you're listening doesn't mean it's good stuff. And there's a lot of A lot of garbage out there, folks. We're living in a rather interesting time within the church. There's a proliferation of bad teaching, stuff that's not biblical. The churches are filled with it. So just because you're listening doesn't mean it's good stuff, but seek out good sound preaching and teaching that'll help us to fight the good fight. Let's move on to the third principle. Third thing that Timothy would need to do in order to fight the good fight was to flee worldly wealth and pursue eternal things to flee worldly wealth and pursue eternal things. You can turn over to chapter 6. We'll get there in just a second. In chapter 6, Paul actually returns to his concerns over the false teachers. But he brings up a new twist this time. Some of them were apparently using religion as a means of financial gain. Plain and simple. Some of the preachers and teachers at Ephesus were doing it because it made them rich. Think we see any of that today? Dustin's laughing. They longed for material and worldly wealth, and as a result, Paul says that they wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6. But flee from these things. I love this. You man of God. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good, here it is again, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain and reproach until the appearing of the Lord Christ. Notice that after Paul talks, and you can read this on your own, but he talks about these men, these false teachers in chapter 6 that were pursuing financial gain. That was the primary motive in their preaching and their teaching and their ministry. It was a career for them, not a ministry. It was a way of making themselves rich. And Paul, at the end of that, says, flee from these things. He didn't just say avoid them. He says flee. That's a pretty amazing picture, isn't it? Hightail it out. Move. Run. It's the same language that's used of fleeing sexual immorality. Remember Joseph? What did he do? He ran away so quickly from Potiphar's wife that he left his clothes behind. Because she grabbed him. Not because he was naked, but she grabbed him as he tried to escape. He didn't care about, i got to go back and get my clothes. No, he fled. Why? Because of the dangers of sexual temptation. He knew sticking around... And so it's the same language, flee. We're told the same thing in scriptures. Flee sexual immorality. And here he says, Timothy, flee these things. What? The pursuit of wealth. And he tells him instead to pursue eternal things. That's especially true of those of us that stand up front here. But it can be true of every Christian, can't it? We can get so caught up that we're pursuing worldly wealth and neglecting the more spiritual things. Think about... What Jesus said, can't serve both God and what? Mammon, money. Right? This is why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous, folks. Joel Osteen and how many others who tell us, well, God wants you happy, wealthy, rich. 
disease-free, all good, fat and happy. It's a false gospel. It's pursuing worldly things. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that God wants you stinking, filthy rich. He says he'll provide for your needs. He says don't worry about it. He says don't store up treasures in heaven. He says where your treasure is, there your heart is, and vice versa, where your heart is, there your treasure is. Those are all the warnings. The scriptures are filled with warnings about falling in love with the world instead of pursuing eternal things. How did Paul end his life? I fought the good fight. I finished the course. Got a huge bank account. Got a nice house. Got a great inheritance to pass off to my kids. Man, God's been good to me. Thanks, Joel. No. He says, my treasure is stored up in heaven. That's the reward. Paul ended his life, I would argue, bankrupt from a worldly sense. Paul didn't have a house. In fact, he was a tent maker. He probably lived in those tents. He probably lived with other people. He says he knew what it was like to be in need. He knew what it was like to have more than he needed. But he also said that it was through his weaknesses that God's power and strength was seen. We live in an amazing nation. The downside of living here, folks, is as Christians, we become fat and happy. We have no clue, most of the time, how our brothers and sisters live all over the world. In poverty, in danger. We think this is Christianity. And unfortunately, we have plenty of teachers here in the evangelical church that teach that that's the way it should be. Sometimes I wonder if we ought to be handing them over to Satan, much like Paul did. Sounds judgmental. Sounds like I'm arrogant and proud. I hope not. That's the reality of it. Paul tells Timothy, flee worldly things. The pursuit of wealth. Flee it. He doesn't say, don't work. doesn't even say, you know, don't prepare for your future. You know, we're not supposed to be idiots. Jesus tells us not to worry. So we are supposed to prepare. The Bible tells us, if you don't work, don't eat. It condemns laziness. It actually condemns not planning for the future to some degree. And so I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm not saying it's wrong to live in a big house. If God blesses you in that way, take it and use it. In fact, the early church, many of the times, it appears from the little information we have in Scripture that they met in homes, and sometimes those homes would have had to have been fairly large homes, which means there was some wealth there. So it's not that wealth is condemned, it's the pursuit of wealth. It's the love of money. It's what these individuals were doing, using their religion to generate wealth. You know how many ministries there are, folks, in the United States where the primary focus appears to really be building a business, not advancing the kingdom of God? Don't condemn the messenger. I'm just telling you what it's like. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make your living off the gospel. Paul did. Peter did. They didn't become wealthy because of it. When I see pastors and ministers and other Christian leaders who are making themselves wealthy because of their ministry, I've got a problem with that. I've been asked oftentimes why I never pursued full-time ministry. Um, There's any number of reasons, but one of the things that has always scared me, because of what I do now, ministry is something that I do um, in addition to working full-time which puts it in a different category for me. Meaning that I have to work very hard at it. I've got to make sacrifices to be able to do it. It keeps me humble in some respects. Um, 
I have to beg God to give me the opportunities I need. I need to ask him to provide the time to be able to do stuff. I could have gone into full-time ministry. I just, in my own mind, thought, you know what? Um, I could see myself falling into that as a career. And I'm not saying every pastor has that struggle. I know a lot of great pastors, and it's not a career for them. It truly is a ministry. That's what you want. And I just, in my own life, I've struggled with that, where I kind of have my career meaning that it pays the bills. And my passion is what I'm doing right now. And one of the ways that I, I, I just sort of see it as God holding me accountable is, um, is that. I just know my personality and who I am, and I've just always struggled thinking if I did that, it would be a career for me. And I didn't want it to be a career. Um, the other part of it is I'm not an evangelist at heart. I'm sorry, in, in gifting. It's not the way God gifted me, but I'm an evangelist at heart. And I've found one thing about myself that when I'm around Christians, I like to gravitate towards Christians all the time. And I wouldn't share the gospel because I didn't know any unsafe people. And so for me, having a job outside of the church forces me to be around unsaved people all day long, even if it's on the phone. That's where I get my opportunities to share the gospel. And I know if I didn't have that, I'd get lazy and I wouldn't do it. So again, it's an accountability thing for me. It shouldn't be a job. It shouldn't be a career. It should be a ministry. And again, Paul says that you can make your living off the gospel. I have no problem with that. It's when it's pursued for wealth as a means of becoming rich. And Paul told Timothy, flee from that. Run away, Timothy. Instead, pursue eternal things. So one of the ways that we should be thinking about this for our own selves, if we want to fight the good fight, we should learn to flee the trappings of worldly wealth, popularity, posterity, and instead be focusing on eternal things. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where thieves break in and can steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If your heart or if your treasure is here on earth, that's where your heart's going to be, folks. Paul challenged Timothy with this principle and warned him that if he wanted to fight the good fight, he would need to flee the trappings of the world and pursue eternal things. So the question we have to ask ourselves, and this is our takeaway, what treasures are we storing up? Where is your heart at, folks? Are you constantly thinking about how to get ahead in this world, but not so much about how you store up treasures for yourself in heaven? The answer to that question lies in our heart because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. No questions asked. If that's where your treasure is, that is where your heart is going to be. There's no way to get around it. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can only serve one. So Paul challenged Timothy, warned him, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. That's what Timothy should pursue. Eternal things. The last and fourth principle that Paul shares with Timothy, I think, in the book here, related to this. And we're going to come back in depth and look at each one of these areas I've just talked about. This is more of a cursory overview to build a picture today of the different things that Paul required of Timothy to fight the good fight. The fourth one is that in order to fight the good fight, Timothy would need to guard biblical truth. Now that ties into the preaching and teaching, but there's something else involved with it. It is actually guarding the truth. 
Look at chapter 6, verses 20 through 21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. So Paul, early in the letter, says, Timothy, fight the good fight. And he ends it with, guard what has been entrusted to you. And what is it that had been entrusted to Timothy? Well, part of the answer comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1. Flip over there if you would. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Chapters 12, or I'm sorry, verses 12 through 13. As Paul starts his second letter to Timothy, he reminds him of the things that have been entrusted to him. Verse 11, or verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So Paul's talking about what he's entrusted to Christ. But then look at this, verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells Timothy, retain the teaching, the sound words that I have passed on to you. Those are the doctrines of the Christian faith. He says, retain those. That's what Timothy had been entrusted with. When you go back to 1 Timothy, that's what Paul tells Timothy, guard these things. It's not just the gospel. There are some who, eh, all that matters is just the gospel. All those secondary issues are not important. You know, you know me, folks. I, I'm a young earth creationist. I love, um, I love what God's word teaches us about his creation and everything. The first 11 chapters, I take that as historical, literal stuff, you know. Um, that is a position that is slowly losing ground within evangelical churches because more and more are adopting theistic evolution and old age stuff and placing the authority of bad science over the infallibility of God's word. I honestly believe that. But I've been watching this week because Ken Ham has made a couple of statements regarding a particular teacher, Tim Keller, and his old earth views and some of what Tim Keller's been teaching. And it's interesting the number of people that are, that are attacking Ken Ham because those things just don't matter. You know, and Ken Ham's response to mine would be, it's interesting because that's the foundation of the gospel. If there's no fall, there's no sin. If there's no sin, there's no need for Christ. Plain and simple. Okay? But it's been interesting watching these people. And I don't doubt that they're believers. I don't doubt that they love the Lord, but they're just hammering him on. But this is a non-issue. Why are you pushing this issue? And um, it's just divisive. And it doesn't matter what you believe, you know? And God could have used, you know, the monkeys to man evolution. And that, none of that matters, you know? And I sit back and I'm thinking, aren't we supposed to guard biblical truth? Isn't the church the pillar in support of the truth? That's what Paul says. It is important. It does matter. And so part of fighting the good fight is guarding what we believe. And we are supposed to. There's no guarantee. When God released you know, the word through the 40 different authors, it didn't come with a guarantee that man wouldn't manipulate it. We still have God's word here. He said he'd protect it. No question. We still have access to it. But it didn't come with a guarantee that men wouldn't pervert it, twist it, distort it. It didn't come with a promise there'd be no false teachers. And so those are the things that we face. And the church's responsibility, our responsibility, is to guard this. And how do we guard it? First off, by making sure that we understand it. Second off, that we make sure that we apply it appropriately. And third, that we preach it and teach it as it's written. I think I've told this story before about the first time I ever preached at my pastor's church back home. I 
don't even know if I was in seminary yet. I think I might have been. But I, it was a passage in Acts, and I got up and I preached. And I was looking forward to going back. And I met with him every Monday morning. We sat together for an hour studying scriptures together. And I couldn't wait to get into there and find out how he thought I did. I want to impress my pastor, you know. I'd been under his tutelage for a while. So I got up and I preached the best sermon I could. And I got into his office and I was apprehensive. I didn't know how he would respond. But, you know, you're, you're wanting that positive feedback, right? And so I went in. I'm just waiting for him to bring it up. And so finally he brought it up. And... He's like, well, I think you did a decent job. You did, you did okay, you know. Um, and you could tell he was sort of hedging his words. And I'm finally like, okay, so why don't you tell me how you really feel? And I said, so um, what is it you're not telling me? And, you know, and he's like, well, um, when you get up in that pulpit, Mike, and he said it just this way, I really don't care what you think. All I care about is thus saith the Lord. And my heart just sank. Just sank. My love for expository preaching, meaning open up the text and tell you what it says over crafting some really creative message, you know, that I've taken the title from some new movie series and figure out some way to teach you the gospel through the Marvel comic movie this you get what i'm pointing at all the creative ways I, one of the first assignments i had in my homiletics class which was class on how to preach was i was supposed to dress up as the apostle paul and pretend to be the apostle paul i struggled with that so i got up and i just opened up one of paul's letters and i preached an expository sermon and i was the first guy to go and i sat down and the professor in front of everybody in the class called me out and said what was that and I went, uh, I just preached from whatever the passage was. And he's like, but you didn't follow the assignment. And I went, isn't this a homiletics class? And he went, well, yeah, but you were supposed to pretend to be the Apostle Paul. And I said, um, I don't know how the Apostle Paul really dressed. I don't know how he talked. I know what he wrote, and I know what he told us. So that's what I did. I don't want to pretend to be the Apostle Paul because that's not communicating what Paul taught. So I don't really know how to do that. And he kind of looked at me and said, well, okay. And then I proceeded to ask him, I said, did I at least do justice to the text? And his response was, I think he did a great job with the text. So I said, isn't that really what we're supposed to be doing here? We never got asked to do anything other than open up the text and preach in that class. And it became about the text. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that to be proud or boastful. I was stupid and ignorant. Maybe I should have listened to my professor, because he was, but I didn't know how to do that. My pastor had taught me, open up the book and tell us what God said. And so that's what we do. That's the way we guard the truth. We tell you what it says. Not what we think. Not how creative we can be with it. I had a pastor friend of mine ask me about a particular passage in Genesis one time. My Hebrew was a little better than his. It wasn't great, but it was better than his. And he said, I have this idea on this text. I want you to look at it. Tell me if you think I'm right. So I went into the text. I went, I don't think so. And I went back to him and I said, I don't think that's what the text says. And he goes, let's look at it. We opened up. We walked through it. And he kind of went, oh, man, I really blew it there. 
And then we talked about it, and I learned some things from him, and he learned some things from me. But what was really cool about it is he was struggling with the same thing. He's like, sometimes I get really creative. I think, wow, this would be great to preach it. This makes a great message. Um, but that's not really what it says. And so that was neat interacting with him because he struggled with that just like all of us sometimes do. Sometimes we're kind of like, man, this would make a great message. Dustin's laughing. But that's not what it says. And so Paul's telling Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. And as we were told, the things that had been entrusted to him were the things that Paul had taught him. Now that doesn't mean we're supposed to just regurgitate what our teachers teach us because what Paul was dealing with was Paul was producing scripture. He was writing scripture. He was speaking prophecy. So when Paul said, Timothy, this is God's word, it was God's word. It's different than when I tell you something, you're supposed to go back here and look at it. Because what I say doesn't mean anything. So you weigh it based on this. In Paul's day, Paul was speaking what's here. Paul wrote what's here. So there's that advantage. Timothy should have listened to him and should have passed on exactly what Paul taught him. And that's what Paul is telling him to do. Guard what has been entrusted to you. So what's our takeaway? Paul charged Timothy with guarding the truth. What had been entrusted to him, the treasure of the gospel, the word of God. But every Christian is supposed to play a role in that, folks. Every one of us. It is important what you believe. You're expected to guard the truth too, not just me. One of the things I love about Renew, folks, is I think you are smart enough and understand the word of God enough to hold my feet to the fire. Some of you have questioned things. Hey, what about this? And what do you think about that? Or even, I'm not sure. It couldn't be any better than that. That's what you're supposed to do. In fact, we're going to look at a... Um, actually, we, are, we won't look at it. It's a passage in 1 Corinthians, um, Corinthians chapter 12 where when the prophets got up to speak, Paul said, after they're done, others are supposed to evaluate it. Check what they said. Compare it. Some of the, some of the prophets would preach, or would speak. Another prophet should evaluate it. Why? Make sure that what's being said is right. Guard guard. So one of the ways that we fight the good fight is guard the truth, folks. Hold us accountable. Nothing stirs me more in a good way than when somebody comes up and they want to talk about something we've taught, but they want to talk about the text. I'm not moved when somebody comes up and says, boy, I loved your story, pastor. I'd rather you come up and say, that passage, that verse, and talk about that. That's the way I love to be challenged. If you come up and say, I disagree with what you taught there, I'd be, my first question is going to be, okay, where? Tell me what we, open the word to me. Because I'll listen. I have no, um, Dustin knows this, um, you don't need a seminary degree to come up and to talk to me, to challenge me. All I care about is how well you know the word of God. I have the advantage of going to seminary. It's a great experience doesn't qualify me necessarily any more than somebody who just knows the book. Guard the truth, folks. One of the best preachers I ever met, aside from Pastor Krenz, was a farmer who had nothing more than a fourth grade education. He was about 85 years old when I met him back in the 80s. Never left, never went to school beyond the fourth grade. His Bible was abused and torn and thumbprinted and stained, but that man could preach from the Word of God because he knew the book, and that's all he knew. And he was one of, our, one of our best elders. 
Because if it came to theological or doctrinal issues, he knew the book. Guard the truth. You want to be somebody who fights the good fight? Guard what has been entrusted to you right here. So, four things that Paul shared with Timothy. Fight the good fight, Timothy. And what does that mean? It means that he'd keep the faith and a good conscience when it came to those things. Can you honestly in your conscience say, yes, I believe and I trust what's written there, or have I gone off the rails? Discipline ourselves for godliness by seeking out solid preaching and teaching of God's word. Third, flee worldly wealth and pursue eternal things. Don't use your faith as a way to make yourself rich, whether you're a teacher or a pastor or a preacher or anybody else. It's not about that. Lastly, Guard what's been entrusted to us. Guard the truth of what's here. In order to do that, you need to know it. You need to live it out. You even need to share it. Amen?